as David comes up and he gets ready to share with you his testimony, feel free to move the mic stand if you want to be in the middle of the stage. I want to let you know something, that as I got a chance to interview David, as I, I've had a chance now over the last couple of weeks to visit with him more, what impresses me even more than his personality and how easy he is to visit with, his love for God's word and his desire to teach it to young people in the next generation, his desire to use his gifting in music and worship to draw people closer to the Father in heaven. And David didn't know this, but I was calling different references, people he didn't even bring up on his resume. Oh, I knew. <laughs> they told me. Because I know people who know David. So I did a little, little sneaking around, a little phone calling. And I called one of the pastors who I trust almost more than any other pastor, a good friend of mine. And I said, tell me about this David Coster. And he said, he's a lot of fun. But more than that, more than that, he loves God with his whole heart. And he's going to do a great job. And he said, and if you don't hire him at your church, we're going to make a position one day and hire him at our church. And that's what he said to me. So I thought that was pretty, that was pretty neat praise to hear from another pastor. So David, we're excited to hear your testimony and hear from mm. God's word from you this morning. Uh, bless you as you share with the church family. And church family, be, be encouraged as you listen in here and be praying as well as see if the Holy Spirit would show to you whether David would be a good fit as one of the shepherds in our church family. Go Thank ahead. you. Well, good morning, everybody. It's uh, great to finally be here with you this morning. Uh, it was approximately two months ago that Allie and I first heard about this position in the Dairy King parking lot. I don't know if there's anything more Swift Current-esque than the Dairy King parking lot. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's been an incredible journey to, to the point where we're here with you this morning. Um, this isn't in my notes, but whenever, whenever I'm singing or whenever I'm leading worship or in the pews and singing a song, I, I just want to like bring out my Bible and start flipping to, to passages like that is right here in God's word. We're singing truths to one another. We're singing about the greatness of God and it's all true and that's what makes those songs so rich. That's why they're so good to sing together. This morning, what I'd like to do is uh, share part of my story. And I watched some of the live stream from Bridgeway from last week, and I realized that somebody was up here and already gave you a lot of my story. So what I'm going to do this morning is just fill in some of the gaps that were uh, left there. It is pretty cool how many connections that we already have with Bridgeway, mainly through my wife who grew up here, um, but in other places as well. So as, after I share my story, then I would like to do is share some of the pillars of my faith that God has put up over the last few years and explain what I mean by those pillars as well. As it was stated last week, I was born and raised in Abbotsford, British Columbia, a very long way away from here. For those of you who don't know where that is, it's about an hour east of Vancouver. So yes, I grew up in the city. And yes, before I went to college, I did not know what a combine was. So I have come a long way since then. I do know what a combine is now. I grew up with my parents taking my brother and I to church every Sunday, even when we didn't want to. 
My parents made it very clear that it was a priority for my brother and I to be in church every Sunday. And I believe that this was important for my spiritual journey. They made it a priority and I was taught from a very young age to love Jesus and to do what was right. I was given a foundation by my parents to put alongside the cornerstone of Christ to build my life on. By grade nine, I was serving on the worship team at my church, playing a piano. Honestly, it could have been the exact same piano um, at my church back in Abbotsford. And I was also playing on the youth band by grade nine. Some of you following grade nine while working at summer camp, I realized that it was time for me to start taking my faith seriously. Not that I hadn't taken it seriously before, it was just up until that point, I had never considered that I had these gifts that God had given me and I needed to use them to build his church and to build his kingdom. And so following that summer, I decided that I was going to quit high school football, which I'd been very successful at for some reason the year before, and decided to quit and put all of my focus and energy into music and specifically into the youth band at church. However, a few weeks before youth started, probably about this time in August, the youth pastor approached me after church one Sunday and told me that he was cutting the youth band from the youth ministry. There was not going to be a youth band that year. I had honestly felt like I had been called out to go onto the field by God, and just before I stepped out onto the field, I was kicked back to the bench. I didn't know what to do with myself. I didn't know what had happened. I didn't know what God actually wanted from me. Grade 10 was not a good year for me. From changing friend groups to deep battles with sin, I spiraled into what I can only say looking back on it now as depression. I stopped going to youth group less and less, and by December or January, I stopped going entirely. Not that I still didn't go to church, I still served on the worship team, still went to church every Sunday, but I decided that youth was not for me anymore. The only time that I went to youth again that year was when I heard that there was a new youth intern about to make his debut, and so I went to see who this guy was, and to be brutally honest, meh. <laughs> I, was, I was honestly not that impressed the first day. It's like he was a little bit better than our youth pastor at the time, but he was, he was okay. I was extremely broken at the time and had just lost interest in being part of the youth group entirely. However, that summer, following grade 10, while practicing with the Sunday worship team on a Thursday night, sitting up on the stage at the grand piano, that youth intern, who had now taken over for the youth pastor who left on medical leave, walked through the sanctuary from the offices. The offices were about over there. He walked through, and he looked at me, and he said, Hey, you're, you're David, right? Yeah. How would, hey, would, would you be interested in starting a youth band next year? I found out later on that that was a very intentional, strategic move by that youth pastor, who I understand many of you know. His name is Drew Weber. 
And I'll take back my mess statement. He's pretty great. You guys did all right with him. <laughs> Drew took me under his wing and gave me the first real discipleship that I had ever had. He taught me what baptism was and baptized me. He taught me about leadership, about discipleship, about worship, about the gospel, the truth of the Bible, and the list could go on and on and on. What Drew did in my life is showed me that the life that God has given us is a life for ministry and mission. During my few years with Drew in youth ministry, it became clear to me that I wanted to spend my life teaching others the truth of God's word and helping them to apply it to their lives. Drew added a floor to the foundation that my parents had put up in my life. Now, the next stage of my life would be college. And the story of getting to college is a long and incredible story that I would love to share the entirety of with you one day. But for the sake of time, I'm going to cut some corners and give you the spark, spark notes this, this morning. Serving under Drew in youth, I realized that I had accumulated enough high school credits to graduate a semester early and intern under Drew for six months before going off to university. And yes, you heard that right, I said university. I, had, I interned under Drew and signed up to go to Trinity Western University to study worship arts and kinesiology. In May, the youth group went to Sunnybrae, which is where Miller's second campus is, for a youth retreat. On the first night that we were there, while I was helping clean up from the first game in the backfield, Drew walked up to me with this random guy that I'd never seen before, who I'd later find out was the registrar of Miller College Sunnybrae. He said, Drew said, hey David, this is David. David, David here is thinking about going to Miller. You guys should chat and uh, answer some of his questions. See ya. And he walked away from us. This random guy that I'd never seen just left me with this guy. Now, I had signed up for Trinity Western, but this whole time, Drew was kind of poking me and priming me. He's like, hey, you should consider this place called Miller. Never heard of it before. But he's like, you should, you should think about it. And then he dropped this guy in front of me and left me with him. And frankly, I was a little bit furious. I had made my decision. I felt like I knew where God was calling me. I was going to Trinity Western. But you see, as David spoke with me, God broke through to me. You see, I wanted to go to Trinity for a couple of reasons. One, they were a pretty good school. I wanted to do worship arts. But I wanted to stay at home. I wanted to stay at my church with my youth group and with my junior high boys that I had been leading for the last two years. After I finished my conversation with David, I went and sat by myself to pray. And as I prayed, I told God that exact thing. God, I don't want to come here. I want to stay at my church with my youth group in my home, and, with, and keep leading my, my boys. And it was there that I felt God speak to me. And he said, David, it is not your church. It's my church. It's not your youth group. It's my youth group. And they are not your boys. They are mine. 
you need to leave home and you need to trust me. I knew it was God because though I had always believed in him my whole life, I had always had a hard time giving up everything to him. And I knew that this was a huge thing that he was asking of me, but I knew it was what I needed to do. So I signed up for Miller Sunnybray after I had given Trinity my down payment and signed up for all of my classes. And personally, I did not think that Miller would accept me that late in the game, so it's like, you know, joke's on you, God. I'll sign up, but they're not going to accept me. But they did. So knowing literally nothing about Miller and what happened at Sunnybrae, at the end of the summer, I packed my car up and I left for college. Now, as I drove, I reminded God of something that I had told him when I first signed up for Miller. Now, if any of you have ever tried telling God what to do, it always works out the way you tell him to do it, right? (laughs) Not even close. (laughs) I said to him, I will sign up. I will go to Sunnybrae. But if there is no space at Sunnybrae, then that's it. I will not go to Pambrin. I will not go to that barren, flat, wasteland of Saskatchewan I draw my line at the Alberta-Saskatchewan border. Any classes in Saskatchewan, not going. Not a chance. Now, if you do not believe that God has a sense of humor, I'm going to tell you a little joke. I showed up at Sunnybrae, and the first thing, one of the first things that I notice is a girl. I start talking to this girl. She's nice. She loves Jesus. Great girl. And then I find out that she is from the easiest to draw, hardest to spell province of Saskatchewan. And I think to myself, great, this is is just great. So I keep talking to her, and by the end of first year, we started dating, and I got in my car at the end of the summer and drove out here to meet her family for the first time, and I was surprised. See, I had thought that Saskatchewan was as flat as this stage, So you can imagine my amazement when I drove into Saskatchewan out of Alberta and the first thing that I go up is a hill. (laughs) What is going on? And then I get to my wife's in-law's place and I look out the back windows and there's rolling hills. This place is pretty sweet. (laughs) It is pretty sweet. (laughs) But you see, God has been breaking me down slowly but surely. He's used Drew, he's used my wife, he used Miller. Miller was a time of putting up pillars on the foundation and the floor set before. Before going to Miller, I had set up some pretty terrible pillars myself. Pillars of grandeur, pillars of things that really don't make church, church. And those pillars would eventually be knocked down for beautiful, elegant, strong, biblical pillars while I was at Miller. At Miller, I put up the pillars of biblical inerrancy, biblical sufficiency, the centrality of Christ and his death and resurrection, and the importance of the local church. Between those pillars, I learned to put up the walls of the aim of glorifying God which comes from 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory 
of God. Allie, my wife, and I both did three years at Miller. We graduated uh, from there in 2021. After graduating, I moved out here. Allie and I got married, and we lived here for a year to work. And then, last year, we went back to Sunnybrae for me to do a fourth year. My fourth year was a time of strengthening those pillars that I just mentioned, making them thicker, making them more beautiful, more elegant, and stronger to hold up a roof. As well as in our time at fourth year, Allie and I learned a lot more about marriage and functioning as a couple in ministry. And now, at this stage in my life, Allie and I are feeling the call to vocational ministry and have been looking for a roof to put over our heads of the cathedral of our lives, a local church to tie it all together. This is what I I like to do with the, the rest of the time that I have this morning, is I want to walk you through those four pillars of my faith that I've mentioned and why I trust them to hold up a roof. And then what I'd like to do is compare those four pillars to your values as a church. What I would see is your pillars that hold up your roof of Bridgeway Community Church. The first pillar that I mentioned was biblical inerrancy. That is a a bit of a complicated theological term, so I'm going to give you some explanation as to what it means. Basically what it means is that the Bible is without error. There is nothing wrong with it. It is perfect. Now there's a lot of layers to that. You see, going into college, I often thought that we had to believe a lot of what we believe about God just on blind faith. And what I learned is that that's not entirely the case. See, our almighty, sovereign God has piled up the evidence, literally piled up the evidence of the inerrancy of his word, of his word that is impossible to ignore. Did you know that the Bible, this, this book that you have in your lap or at home or on your phone, is recognized as one of, if not the most reliable ancient text in the world when it comes to archaeology and other things. Why is that? Why do they trust it above all other things? There's an ancient text called Homer's Iliad, which is a Greek text that has the majority of the stories of the Greek gods and demigods like Hercules and Zeus and Poseidon. We have a number of copies that have been more or less preserved and we can trust not that what's in that text is true, that those gods were real, but that what Homer originally wrote is what we have to this day. And you see, we can trust it and we have only around 10 copies of Homer's Iliad. When it comes to the New Testament alone, okay, Forget about the Old Testament for now. Just the New Testament, we have close to 6,000 Greek manuscripts. Just Greek. That's not including Latin or Ethiopian or any of the other languages around Israel at the time of the writing of the New Testament. If you pile up the manuscripts of Plato, Aristotle, Herodotus, and Homer, all of whose writings we trust as authentic, by the way, the pile would be approximately four feet high. 
if you pile up all of just the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament, it would pile up a mile high, over a mile high. A stone-cold evidence to the authenticity of the scriptures. You see, inerrancy doesn't just say that we know what the original authors wrote. Inerrancy also means that it is perfect. There cannot be any contradiction, historical inaccuracy, theological falsehood, or any falsehood of any kind. If there was, the entire text of scripture would fall apart. Everything would fall into question. But here's what I've come to learn. Any apparent contradiction in the Bible is the result of not reading enough of it. Any apparent uh, historical inaccuracy has been proven false by digging just a little deeper in the dirt. And any theological falsehood is proven wrong by the life of a true Christian. But even with, with those evidences, the greatest evidence that I found in college for the authenticity of the scripture, and even the death and resurrection of Christ, which I'm gonna talk about in a moment, was the life of the disciples themselves. The disciples died for this book. See, a Christian who dies today for this book could be passed off as a fool who was duped by people who wrote this book 2,000 years ago. There are people who claim that the disciples made it all up. They stole Jesus' body. That they wanted religious power over people. And when I hear that, I look at the lives of the disciples. See, if I was going to fake a religion and I was going to make it all up and I was going to turn this guy who died into a god and write these books and, and try to get religious power, I would admit that it was all a lie before I was hanging upside down on a cross like Peter was. I would admit that I saw nothing on the road to Damascus and that's all a lie. I would admit it before I was executed like Paul. And I would admit that the tomb still had the rock or the stone rolled in front of it and Jesus was laying right where they left him three days earlier before put into boiling oil like John. These men saw the risen Christ or else they would not have died for it. Either they saw God, and as Peter said, that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit, or... As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You see, I've come to believe that the evidence points to what Paul says next. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now I'm going to skip my next pillar of the sufficiency of Scripture and jump to the centrality of Christ. As I just stated, if we only have hope in Christ for this life, we're in trouble. But you see, this is what God did for us. 
As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God provided a way. Right there in Genesis 3, they sinned, God shows up and gives them what is known as the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. He says that from Eve, Eve, from your offspring, will come one who will crush the head of the serpent. God provided the sacrificial system for the Israelites as a means of faith in God, trusting that he would pay for their sins. And what I came to learn in college is that that was an act of faith. That the blood of sheep and goats does not satisfy. This is where I come to the, one of the craziest passages that I read in college. Romans 3, 21 to 25. It says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation in our place by his blood to be received by faith. And this is the This is the sentence that blew me away. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. All the sins before, all the sins after. Jesus is the center of history. He is the center of faith. He is the center of life itself. He paid for every sin before and every sin after. The Israelites, when they were sacrificing those animals, were passing out checks with nothing in the bank to back it up. When Jesus died on the cross, their bank accounts were filled. And now we have those same checks today. When we cash a check of righteousness, our bank is filled with the righteousness of Jesus. That is just incredible. It's mind-blowing to me. And this leads me into my next pillar, the sufficiency of Scripture. This pillar of the sufficiency of Scripture comes from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What I've come to realize and set up as a pillar in my life is that God's word is the handbook for life. It has guidance for every area of life and we should let it influence and change how we live our lives. It is to equip us for every good work as we work at our jobs, whether it's teaching, farming, construction, customer service, or anything else. It is to equip us for raising our children. It is to equip us to, or, uh, for how we order our house, for how we order our wallets, even for how we cast our ballots in an election. It truly is the handbook for life. My final pillar is the local church. 
All of the previous pillars are good and they're important. But you need at least four pillars to hold up a roof effectively. The local church is God's chosen means of spreading the good news of the gospel and new life to the nations. We need strong local churches for accountability and encouragement in the Christian life. Our sinful nature is always creeping at the door. And apart from the Spirit of God and the help of our neighbor pushing us along, pushing us forward, it will come after us. Finally, the walls of the house. What do we do this for? Why are, why are you sitting in these pews? Why am I standing up here? Why, why am I candidating at Bridgeway? Why would I candidate at any church for that matter? Why do we submit to the lifestyle of Christianity laid out in the scriptures? I quoted it once already, 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or speak or sit in pews or sing or work or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Everything we do is to praise God, to make much of him, show him to be greater than anything else that people worship. For all of human history, people have chosen to worship other things. But we as Christians show that God, the only true God, is the only one worthy of our praise and worthy of our worship. And in all things, we should aim to glorify him. So this begs the question, how do I see these personal pillars of faith that I've put up in my life lining up with your vision and values as a church? Well, I think that your vision to see transformation in Jesus seen through my belief that the word of God is sufficient for training in righteousness and becoming Christ-like. I believe that the local church should be intergenerational, as you have in your values, in order that all generations can learn from and build up the next. A scriptural foundation is essential for a church to function. There has to be an adherence to some form of best practices, whether it's a church or a country or a business, in order for people to get along. And I believe that the word of God is the best form of best practices ever written. No constitution, no set of bylaws or laws can ever compare to this. Because as I explained, it is perfect. It is written by the inspiration of God. And I believe that it is essential for us as Christians to be involved in ministry as we let the word change our lives, as we become more Christ-like the natural result is to be involved in ministry. And it does not necessarily mean that everyone is going to be involved on a Sunday morning or even during the week at the church. However, if we are authentic in our faith, following God's word, we will build relationships with our brothers and sisters around us and with our neighbors next door who do not know Christ. And in so doing, we will fulfill the command that Christ left us with, to take the good news to all the nations, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded us. And as I said, that is done by being authentic people, doing the work of ministry every day, 
on the foundation of the scripture, building relationships with those that God has put around us, all generations, in order to build the local church. That's all that I have for you this morning, but I just want to say I believe that whether the Lord brings Allie and I here or not, God is going to continue to build his church. And my prayer is that he will continue to build his church in Swift Current, in Saskatchewan, in Canada, and all around the world. Thank you. Amen. That was fun. Thank you, David. I want to give you guys an opportunity to visit with David. So after the service, um, go track him down. We're going to take a few minutes before we have our meeting after the service and grab him in the foyer and ask him a few questions. If we had half an hour right now, I'd just let you pepper him now, but we just don't have that kind of time at this second. But continue to pray about this. We have two weeks now to commit this to prayer and to collectively ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us whether uh, this thing that he's presented to us is good, as they say in Scripture, to, uh, to discern how the Spirit is moving and what the Spirit is saying to us. Hmm. So uh, I want to pray for you, and then we're going to have the worship team come up. We're going to sing a closing song, and then you're dismissed until we have our meeting after the service. Hmm. So Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have sent a servant to come meet us. We thank you that David is being shaped by you, and you've been shaping him for many years, that you've directed his steps and led him in places that he didn't even know you were taking him to go. Thank you that you've placed within him, Lord Jesus, a strong faith that is grounded on your word and that you are developing him, Lord Jesus, and sanctification is taking place. You're shaping him to look more like your son, Father. I pray that collectively, Holy Spirit, you show to us whether this is good and whether David would fit our family. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for his heart, and I pray that he would be an effective minister of the gospel, that people would come to know who you are, would come to trust in your word, that hearts would be changed, and that David would be an effective part of sharing in, in that experience. Lord, thank you that you've brought him here to meet us, Thank you, Father, that you've seen all things. Thank you that today does not surprise you. Thank you for how you provide for our family and how you always have. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.